Welcome to another episode of Contemporary Communication. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Jones, and today we are going to talk about Socrates' response to Lysias' speech from Phaedrus. Thanks for tuning. So today I want to look at Lysias' speech. Um, we talked a little bit in the last episode about how Phaedrus came to have this speech from, speech from Lysias. And so today we're going to look not so much at Lysias' speech itself, but Socrates' response to it. Um, because I, I think it's there that we get an understanding of how, how responding to, to the media culture aspect of Phaedrus has to teach us. So, so uh, as we mentioned, Lime, Phaedrus has this speech not just because he's heard Lysias give it, and, and so he's been uh, he copied it down or he got a copy of it from Lysias himself. Rather, Phaedrus has been studying the speech. It's something something that he loves, and and so he's studying it and practicing it. And Socrates accuses him of going outside of the walls of the city that he can um, play around around with it, he can practice his oratorical skills, and so and so. When we look, we look at Socrates' response to this speech, a couple of things um, stand out to me. One is, if we take Socrates at his measure, then we get a different reading of how those than if, than if we take Socrates at his, at his measure. So we'll begin by, um, I'm going to say, we'll read the dialogue through kind, kind of straight, um, and, um, and then we'll come to it and end it with a little bit more subtlety and nuance. So when we read it through straight the first, first time, we get the, the Socrates' whole wholehearted praise of Lysias' speech. So Lysias has um, given this oration on why you should prefer the non-lover to the lover. And the theory of the, the idea is that you, you should prefer the non-lover because the, the lover isn't overwhelmed with their passions. The number is able to give give you a dispassionate response and a dispassionate reading of the moment. And so, when the, the non-lover, which is something or thing or someone, non-lover weighs it according to a fair measure and then determines what's best, and it doesn't have an aventive effect overall on, on the core of the society, the beloved, beloved, the nature of the lover or the thing that is um, beloved. So, so. When when Socrates responds, his initial response to Phaedrus, he says, um, and I'll I'll give the the line line numbers here, um, so, um, so no matter copy of the text, you'll be able to to find it in your own translation. In uh, 234D, Socrates says, uh, it, "It's a miracle. I'm in ecstasy, and it's all all you're doing, Phaedrus." I was looking at you while you were reading, and it seemed to me that the speech had you radiant with delight. And to leave, you understand matters better than I do. Do I follow your lead and and fling you? I shared your bacchic friendly. And so Socrates' creation of the speech initially is this praise of its effect. He says that it has this imp- impact on him, and the impact impact is um, due to not so much to the speech as to the reading of the speech. And then that's important. If, if you remember your uh, Ceronian can- canons, you um, arraignment style, memory, delivery, and, and um, invention. So what Socrates is saying is, uh, we'll, not, we'll not touch on the end of the memory, but uh, the arrangement, the style, the delivery, wonderful. I loved it. And we'll actually see that Socrates is going to walk back some of the, ultimately, he comes back. To, it's the delivery. The delivery was really compelling. 
And so in this moment, then what Socrates is saying, he's, he's overwhelmed. He's um, uh, taken under by the, uh, the del- delivery of Phaedrus' recitation. Now, Phaedrus responds, and this is where we add nuance into Socrates' response. So Phaedrus responds, this is, this is time for joking. And Socrates says, um, do you not do you not take me seriously? And Phaedrus then asks two questions. So initially, initially, Phaedrus sort of said, what did you think? And Socrates said, oh, I loved it. Overwhelmed. So then Phaedrus asks two particular questions. He says, you're not at all, not at all serious, please, but now tell me the truth. In the name of Zeus, God of friendship, do you think that any any other could say anything more, more impressive or more complete on the same subject? And so Phaedrus has given two areas for critique. The one is can anyone say anything more, more improve? And then the second is can anyone say anything more complete? Now so- Socrates cedes the the impressive of of Phaedrus's recitation. He says it's impressive. It is it's making an impression upon me. I am overwhelmed. I'm in I'm in a rocket. The second part that Socrates is not willing or able to concede. And I want to point out something about Socrates' nature here. Um, if we think back to Socrates he's, uh, describes himself, self, the um, Socratic jurisdiction, he concedes the wisdom of others in, in evaluating their, their work and evaluating their contributions and in evaluating their own wisdom. So he begins by saying, I'm following your lead, Fade Phaedrus. You seem overwhelmed, overwhelmed by this. And so I will initially accept that you must be right because you know more about this than I do. And it's only then that Socrates will begin to to question and to evaluate that initial judgment. So the initial judgment is, you're right, Phaedrus, this um, overwhelm. But then the later judgment, the the nuance enters in and he says, well, I'm not sure. If I have to say that it's impressive, that it's overwhelming, then I agree. But if I have to say that it's complete, I don't think I can. And so this is how Socrates responds to Cius's speech um, with the, the two conditions. He says, "What must we praise the speech even on the ground that it is spoken in, in a <clears throat> must we must we praise the speech even on the ground that its author has said, said what the situation demanded and and not said simply on the ground that he has spoken clear and concise manner with a size turn of phrase? If we must, I will have to go along for your sake, since sure because I am so ignorant that passed me by." Paid attention only to the speech style, and to the and to the other part, I wouldn't even think that Lysias himself could be satisfied with it, for it seemed to me, unless of course you disagree, that he said the same things two, two or three times, as if he really didn't have much to say about the subject act, almost as if he were, if he were wasn't very very interested in it. In fact, he seemed to me to be showing off, trying to demonstrate that he could say the same thing in two different ways and say it just as well both times. In this critique, critique Socrates is, is addressing the the beauty and overwhelmness of the of the speech, um, but he's also critiquing substance of it. Now, it's at this point that we should zoom entirely out and, and ask a really, really different different question. If Lysias' speech is correct, and we should prefer the non-lover, then how should we interpret Socrates' response to Lysias' speech? In a very, very narrow context, right? Lys speaking about the, the nature of erotic love, and, he, and he's given a lover and her and the beloved, right? right? 
But if we zoom out and we ask a question about what is the na nature of love, and this is, this is where Socrates is kind of going, going, if we zoom out, or rather this is where Plato is going, if we zoom out and we say, all right, should we trust the, the non-lover on the matter of their beloved? Then we, we need to ask the question, if Socrates and Phaedrus are beloved of this speech, or rather, if they're intuited with speech, if they're, in, if they're in this speech, can we trust their judgment? And this is the kind of logical, logical puzzle that he has presented Phaedrus with. If the speech is true, then we cannot judge it in either Phaedrus's measure or Socrates' measure, because they have both, measuring themselves off of Phaedrus, pronounced their love of, of the speech itself. And so if, if they love the speech, and Lysias would say, they cannot be trusted. They, they have been compromised. And so we cannot trust Socrates' evaluation of the speech. And yet, if Socrates didn't love the speech, then according to Lysias' argument, we could trust Socrates. Socrates has set himself up in this very precarious position of, of we can't de determine whether we should trust or not. Now, to, to zoom out apply this to a contemporary context, we might ask a question of uh, when a new technology is introduced into a society, we are immediately infatuated with technology itself. We are beloved of the technology. And so this raises a question. If Lysias is correct, then we should trust ourselves with the technology because we are overwhelmed with love for it. And here, Socrates gives us, gives us some warning. He says, if that's our approach, and if Lysias is correct, then we must be very, very conscious because in this moment, our faculties have been commised, and we are not able to adequately uh, judge the technology as, as it's been presented because we are in its, in its sway. We, we are... We are the lovers of this technology. It is our beloved. And so we um, exist in relation to it as the lover in relationship to beloved. So Socrates won't end in there. Um, he's not, not going to end with his with merely accepting Lysias' art. And, and he'll go on to critique what Lysias is really saying by digging into the the subtle nuance of Lysias' argument and in order to understand what, what truth is here. If we stopped here, if we ended at this point, then we would have a, have a kind of equation. On the one hand, one hand the the beauty of the new um, thing, the, the the beauty of our beloved, beloved overwhelms us, and our judgment is compromised, and, and so we should prefer the judgment of the dispassioned. But on the other hand, the effect of beloved on the other is is such that. We see Socrates overwhelmed with his passion, and it se it seems to me there's kind of a, a balance being struck between the passion on the one, one side and then the rationality on the other. On the other, and I'm not comfortable with saying that Plato will push us for a middle road, a sort of golden mean that that um, Aristotle uh, um, frequently evokes in his writings. But it seems, it seems that there is a kind of uh, counterbalance. As I've talked about earlier with Pollock and this, this, this nature of pulling on, on both sides, uh, uh, that, that, that um, surety and doubt 
assurance, like, like positive, um, I, know, I know this, and doubt, I, I'm unsure, are pulling at us equally. And it, it's not that we stand in a, in a solid middle ground that balances, balances these two forces, but that we're constantly being swayed from one side to another. And in fact, when I, when I think about this relation to, to technology, I'm reminded, reminded of an article that I read from the first volume, first issue, issue of um, Empedocles, the, the European Journal of Communication and Philosophy. And in this article, the, the author explores three different modes of understanding the relationship between um, public knowledge and public. It says that, that uh, directly in Western traditions, um, the idea goes back to a Kantian uh, metaphysic and, and to a, um, a utilitarianism of uh, J.S. Mill, which is this, this idea that the public had a right to know. And so the the media ser- serves as a mediary. So it's it's merely conveying um, to the public that, that which they have a right to know. And the author balances that against an orthodox conception, which, which argues that it's actually the duty of the individual to not know. And he frames frames this frames this in the sense of um, gossip. That the, the gossip that exists in a community indeed damages the community and damages the reputation of the individual. So the duty of the community to not know, um, to, to enter into every situation with a certain naivete. But then the art sort of suggests and wrote uh, that's based in a, a it's based in a, a Hebraic law tradition, uh, and I this is where he re- references um, a rabbi from Lithuania, and he says. There's this kind kind of middle route that's been law that says there's a duty to know, and that duty to know means that it's the the responsibility of the community to carry forward um, the shame of the, of the past, and it's it's kind of like the idea of pillory um, that in, when someone transgresses the law um, and with the community to be put outside of the community, not just physically but also. Um, they should be remembered one who has trans- transgressed. And so, there, and so there's this uh, duty to know. I think when we look at these sort of three positions, Socrates falls, falls somewhere between the um, Western tradition of the public's right, right to know and the, the law position of the duty of the um, community to know. And this is here where, where it's something about our, our, our passions, which lead us to knowledge, but there's also a balancing of understanding what that knowledge does, that there's a, a burden to bear with knowledge. So knowing is not an innocent act, that there is a morality that it is embedded in the things that we know. So, so know something is not a, um, a morally um, abstract thing. That there, there is a morality to the knowledge that we possess. And if we disregard that, that morality, then we are also disregarding the consequences of knowledge. So then, to list in the framework that Lysias has put out, those who are not in love with knowledge are those who should be trusted. Because those who are not in love with knowledge are best able to evaluate um, knowledge. And it's it seems that Socrates is going to be against it, is, go, is going against that conclusion, and so I thought we'll um, wrap up our conversation about this this first from the Phaedrus.
And so what we've done here today is we've looked at how Socrates responds to Phaedrus's recitation of Lysias's speech, how Socrates at first embraces the, the overwhelming uh, passion of speech. He says, ah, I'm in love with it. But because of the subject of this speech, we know that we, sh- we should trust Socrates' love for the speech because now, because now he's come as the, as the lover. And so Socrates is going to have to, in some way, explain his position or himself. And we'll look forward, forward to in the next in the next step. And that's it for today's episode. Hopefully the audio quality came through a little bit. Um, um, I think I noticed some skipping when I was trying to put this together. So we'll see. Hopefully it all came out all right. Um, if not, we'll return to the discussion at a later point. And I look forward to talking through more of the Phaedrus with you. <laughs>